refuges and precepts together. Um, and for those of you who are on eight precepts, you can just follow in the chanting of the last three. And we can chant together rather than call in response. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa. Buddhang saranang gochami, Dhammang saranang gochami, Sangang saranang gochami, Dutiampi buddhang saranang gochami, Dutiampi Dhammang saranang gochami. Dutiampi sangang saranang gochami. Dutiampi budang saranang gochami. Dutiampi damang saranang gochami. Dutiampi sangang saranang gochami. Panati pata. We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Adinadana We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Brahmacharya We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Musawada We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda, Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Vibhusanatana, We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Uchasayana, Mahasayana, We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Idame Silang, Magapala Nyanasa Pachayo Ho Tu. Back in the mid-60s, I first went to India to look for a teacher. I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand before that and had just begun a little bit of practice of meditation, but not really having gotten too much instruction. I came back to the States and tried to practice by myself, but it was extremely confusing. I was just mixing up everything I had heard mantras and third eyes and the breath and it's kind of just a jumble of things and it didn't take long to realize that I could use some guidance. So I went back to Asia thinking I might go to Thailand, return to Thailand, but I wanted to stop in India and went around a bit looking for a teacher uh, in different traditions. I ended up in Bodh Gaya, which of course as you know is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. 
And at that time, it was extremely undeveloped. It was just this small little village with, of course, the beautiful temple. And there were just very few Westerners there at that time. There were maybe half a dozen Westerners. And Munindraji, my first teacher, had just come back after spending nine years in Burma at Mahasi Saido's monastery. And so I ended up staying at the Burmese Vihar, which is like was monastery or was kind of a resting place for Burmese pilgrims, but because Burma was closed at the time, uh, it was pretty empty. And just the few Westerners in Bodh Gaya were staying there. So I met them, they took me to see Munindra. And one day as we were sitting around on the roof of the Vihara, this was right at the beginning of my stay, we were sitting around and he just went around to each of us and asked, as we did in the go-around the first morning, why did you come to practice? And people had different responses. But for me it was really clear from the beginning that what drove me to practice, what brought me to practice was the possibility of awakening. But people can start the meditation from very different motivations. Now some people might begin the practice really as a way of stress reduction. We live in a very stressful society. It's very speedy. You know, and sometimes people look to meditation as a way of reducing stress in their lives, which it certainly helps to do. Sometimes people are drawn to meditation because of a great desire to come out of psychological or emotional suffering. You know, we can get so tied up in emotional, psychological knots that cause a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. And so that can be a motivation for us. How can I understand that? Or it might be the desire for liberation, for awakening, for enlightenment. What's interesting to observe, and you may know this from your own experience, but I've certainly seen it with many meditators over the years, is that as we practice, and as our understanding deepens, the motivation often changes. We may start motivated by one idea or feeling, but as we learn more and go deeper into the Dharma, it's as if our minds, our hearts open to greater possibilities. There are many different methods and techniques of insight meditation. Manindraji said that after he had studied with Mahasi Sayadaw, he went around Burma and studied 50 different ways of doing Vipassana. So it's not that there's just one approach. There are many, many methods of cultivating awareness, of cultivating mindfulness. But all of these techniques and methods are rooted in one discourse of the Buddha. And that's why this particular discourse is so amazingly rich and powerful. And, as you know, it is the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha opens this discourse. You know, sometimes they refer to certain statements of the Buddha or Arhans as the lion's roar, you know, kind of dramatic declarations. Well, the Buddha opens the discourse on mindfulness with an amazing statement. It's very unambiguous. The opening of the sutta says, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are the four? Mindfulness of body, of feelings, of mind, and of dhammas. Dhammas in that, leave it untranslated, but it's 
often refers to the different categories of experience. So that includes a lot of the well-known Buddhist lists. So this is quite time. The Buddha is saying, this is the direct path to liberation. This is the direct path to the end of suffering, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's not an insignificant thing that we're undertaking here. You know, we're embarking on a path that leads to the highest realization, that leads to the end of suffering. So over these next weeks and months, we'll be exploring in different ways these four foundations of mindfulness. But I thought tonight it would be helpful to clarify and to define three important terms. And the terms, they often get confused. So to have clarity about them, I think, will be a good foundation for your practice. The first of these terms is consciousness. And this is the ordinary, ongoing process of knowing different objects of experience. And this process, this ongoing process of consciousness, is rolling along, is proceeding in all beings. It's going along in animals, in human beings, it's going along in babies, in children, in adults. The same process of consciousness, of knowing sights and sounds and smell and taste and sensations, different objects of mind. So consciousness is that simple knowing. So I find it interesting sometimes just to watch like a pet or a baby or a young child. We can just see in just observing them, it's so clear that that knowing process is going on. They're, They're being led by all the things that the consciousness is knowing. You know, they're knowing sights, knowing sounds, knowing tastes, just as we are. I really enjoy watching either a pet or a wild animal because you can just see the mind, the knowing mind, and it's just being led by the senses. You know, it's just sense impressions are happening moment after moment, and they're just, I call it black lab consciousness. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you're familiar with black, with black labs, but they're particularly delightful <laughs> just to watch. This is quite an aside, but it's just, there's a wonderful line in a translation of a poem by Pablo Neruda. It was translated by Stephen Mitchell. And it's just, it's one of my favorite lines in poetry in terms of describing animals. He says, dogs are baffled lions. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I get a great delight just in watching, you know, the dogs live their lives. Because it's kind of like baffled lions, you know. Anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> So consciousness is the simple knowing of these different sense objects that are arising moment after moment. And the knowing and its object always arise together simultaneously. So it's a pairwise progression. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. So this is going on throughout our lives. And it's going on in all beings. So this is the first term, consciousness. The second term I want to talk about is mindfulness or awareness. And in this context, I'm using these terms synonymously. In some contexts, sometimes people do mean different things by mindfulness and awareness, but in this context, I'm using them to mean the same thing. So mindfulness or awareness 
sometimes can get confused with knowing. You know, we, we use the words in not such a precise way. We're aware of something, we know something. But in a meditative understanding, they really refer to two quite different things. So mindfulness or awareness is that quality that is aware that we're knowing. Mindfulness is the quality that is aware that we're knowing a particular object. It is the present moment remembering of what is happening in our experience. Now, in the word sati in Pali, which is often translated as mindfulness, it's associated with remembering. And it has to do with this remembering in the moment. Yes, this is what's happening. We know, we're aware that we know something. We're aware of what it is that we know. Okay, so the, the ordinary knowing of different objects, which is how we're usually going through the day. And we're usually going through the day with black lab consciousness. You know, we're just doing different things, engaged in all the activities. And in this black lab consciousness, just the simple knowing, we are acting out unmindfully all the habit patterns of our conditioning, all the habituated tendencies. We're just kind of going along like that black lab. But sometimes, and this happens more frequently with our meditation practice, we, we, we remember what we're doing as we're doing it. It's like that's a moment of mindfulness. You know, it can be lost, carried away, and then in a certain moment we remember, oh, this is what's happening. We become mindful of the object, we become mindful of the fact that we're knowing it, So it's one level of waking up. A simple example of this, an example of the difference between consciousness, or that bare knowing, and mindfulness. Just think back to the last time you were in uh, cinema. You went to the movies. Watching the movie, and good movie, very absorbed, And as we're lost in the story, as we're just absorbed in the story of the movie, you know, we have all the attendant emotions. Maybe we're excited or happy or sad or frightened, you know, depending on what the movie is. And then maybe we have a moment when we suddenly remember, oh, this is just a movie, right? It's not, all that stuff is not really happening. In that moment of mindfulness, there's a little more space in the mind. We're not so totally identified with or lost in what's happening. It's like a moment of creating more space in which we're mindful of what's happening. What's interesting here, and this would be worth examining in your experience, before that moment of mindfulness, we are still knowing what's going on. The consciousness is there. We're not unconscious. And if somebody asked you afterwards, you know, what was in the movie, we would be able to tell them. Because the knowing is there. The flow of consciousness is going on. It goes on all the time. But we're not always mindful in those moments of consciousness. Mindfulness is that stepping back from being lost in, stepping back from being completely identified with. So our practice, even in the first few days, illuminates a tremendously important insight. And it's an insight that you have all had already. And that is we see how often our minds become absorbed in the movies of our minds. It's like there's an internal cinema, you know, and we are in this movie theater and a good part of the time we're lost in the story. 
And not only with the stories in the mind, just as we go through the day, we get lost in the knowing of different sense objects, in sights and sounds and smells. When we're not mindful that that's happening, it's just leading us around, just like the, the dogs are being led around by their senses. One of the things that we see in being on retreat is how often this happens. And of course, it's all the internal, you know, the, the memories, the plans, the fantasies, the wants. So there's a whole internal drama that's going on as well. I'm sure you've noticed, you can just be sitting and one thought may arise and if it's unnoticed, it's as if we just hop on a train of association and one thought leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And before we know it, we're in some completely unpredictable destination. You know, we're kind of in a whole inner world scenario. How did we get here? Sometimes we call this phenomenon the wandering mind. But I think that's not such a useful term. Because the wandering mind implies something that we have to go get and bring back. Right? So it's a bit of work. The mind doesn't actually wander anyplace. The mind is always right here. What we call the wandering mind is simply that objects are arising in the mind that are going unnoticed. You see the difference? It's not that the mind goes anyplace. The mind is always right here. But when we don't notice what's arising, it seems as if it's wandering. So it's not so much the effort to drag the mind back to the present moment. It's always in the present moment. It's more a question of training ourselves to be aware of what's arising in the moment. So that's a much more restful attitude. Not that it's any easier, but it's a more restful perspective. Don't underestimate the value of this insight, of realizing how often the mind is lost in the thoughts and feelings and dramas of our minds. Because most people don't know this about their minds. You know, if we went up to somebody just on the street and say, you know, do you get lost in what's happening in your mind? Oh, no. No, I know what's going on. Because unless we have taken the time and turned the attention inward, people don't know. They don't know this about themselves. And because they don't particularly know it about themselves, they're not particularly motivated to wake up from this dreamlike flow of delusion. So this understanding that we all have, this is... Has anybody not seen this? <laughs> I don't think so. So it's like we all share in this understanding. It's an important one because this becomes a powerful motivating force. We see how often we're asleep and it motivates us. Okay, can I be more awake in my life? So this is the power of mindfulness. It's the noticing, the present moment remembering. And instead of being lost or identified with what's arising, we know what's arising. We know that we know. So this is a poem, a, a Dharma poem, by one of our teachers uh, who died some years ago. He was one of the really great Dzogchen masters in the Tibetan tradition. And he wrote uh, this Dharma song on mindfulness. He said, mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. 
Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. And by the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. It's powerful. You know, unfortunately, the word in English does it not really suggest the power of this quality of mind. It's kind of a prosaic word, mindfulness. But when you really see what that quality is in the mind, it is an amazing quality. It's mindfulness which allows for this whole awakening process to take place. It's knowing that we know. It's stepping out of the dream. As we relax into an awareness, a mindfulness of the body and mind, we begin to experience greater subtleties, greater subtleties about the sense objects, and greater subtleties about the attitudes in our mind about experience. You know, and I'm sure you've seen already, we become much more intimate in our experience of the body. Begin to feel all kinds of sensations that we may not have even known were there. You know, and they're not necessarily all pleasant. But our awareness gets much more refined. We begin to feel tightness and pressure and vibration and heat and cold and lightness and heaviness you know, and softness and hardness. It's like there's a whole world of sensation that begins to reveal itself as we become mindful. We go from the abstraction of having a body. Body is an abstraction to the actual felt sensations. There's where we're really in touch with what is going on. You know, and just in walking about through the day, instead of you know, just being led you know, by unmindfulness, being led like the black lab, with mindfulness we get much more subtly aware even just of colors, shades of color, where we're not so fixated you know, on the concept and we're just aware of seeing. It's interesting to bring seeing into the practice. It's a big domain of experience. But we don't often bring clear, sustained mindfulness to it. What's it like just to have that soft awareness of seeing? lots revealed, or smelling, or tasting. And of course we become much more subtly aware of the thoughts and emotions in our minds. So as we practice, as we practice this mindfulness, a continuity of mindfulness, a certain momentum builds up, and it becomes both more effortless and also more refined. But mindfulness itself is not enough. Awareness itself is not enough. And this brings us to the third term. So there's consciousness, that's just that simple knowing that's going on moment after moment in all beings. There's mindfulness or awareness, which is that moment of stepping out from being lost in that flow, where we're aware of what's happening, we know that we're knowing. The third term that we need to understand in this meditative journey is that of wisdom. Now, wisdom comes out of awareness. 
we could say mindfulness or awareness is the platform of wisdom or it's the foundation of wisdom. Wisdom combines the qualities of investigation. Wisdom is that quality of mind that is really investigating and looking deeply with what the Buddha called right understanding and right view. So it's those times when we are learning from our experience. It's not just being mindful of what's there. That's the foundation, that's the platform. But we want to then bring an investigative wisdom so we learn from what we're mindful of. We begin to investigate from that platform of mindfulness what is the nature of the experience that's presenting itself. We see that whatever is arising, whether it's some sensation in the body or a sight or a sound or an emotion or a thought, everything that arises is simply expressing its own nature. And this is a very important word, nature. And it's, it's one of the translations of the word dharma. The dharma means law or the nature of things. So our dharma practice is really the investigation of the nature of experience. Mindfulness lets us know what it is that's there. Wisdom investigates One of the things we begin to see through wisdom is that experience doesn't belong to anyone. It's not that there's someone behind this flow of experience to whom it's all happening. Rather, moment after moment, consciousness and its object flowing along, it's everything simply expressing its own nature. So we could think of it as nature unfolding. That's what's happening. But as we all know, very strong tendency, a tendency of delusion, is to personalize this experience. This is happening to me. It's always delusion, but sometimes it's... it's even more inappropriately deluded than other times. <laughs> so I'll just give one example. This is a story from Ajahn Chah, you know, who was a great teacher of the Thai forest tradition. And this is, was from a book of uh, his teachings. It was a story. He was off on retreat in a little meditation hut outside of one of the villages where he had one of his monasteries. And the villagers who were all his students, you know, they knew that he was going off on retreat uh, and they were providing for his needs. But one night he's meditating you know, in his hut and he hears all this loud music coming through loudspeakers from the village. You know, loudspeakers are very predominant in Asia, especially out in the countries. So this loud, loud music is blaring And he got very irritated. <laughs> Don't they know? I'm here, I'm, you know, I'm their teacher, and they know I'm meditating, they know I'm on retreat, and why are they making so much noise? And you can just imagine, it's not, not an unfamiliar train of thought. Right? It's easy to imagine what it would be. But then, because he was Ajahn Chah, he didn't just stay lost in that reactivity of mind. You know, he began to investigate he brought wisdom to bear on what's happening. And so this, is, this was his wisdom conclusion. Well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. 
It's me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. That is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's go not going to bother me. I mean, it's so kind of down-to-earth and so profound. It's just seeing the nature of things. That's the nature of sound, to make sound. If our minds don't bother it, it won't bother us. So just like we can investigate experiences, like Ajahn Chah did with sound, you bring that same wisdom mind to investigate everything that's arising within us in a very fruitful arena to investigate, to bring wisdom to, is the arena of the physical sensations that we feel. Now this is a big part of our practice as we sit and walk, go through the day, there's a lot of sensations that are felt. We feel a sensation. We become mindful of it. Okay, that's the first step. We're not, just, we're not just being carried away and lost in what's happening. We become mindful of a particular sensation. But then we can look further. We can use our wisdom then to investigate what is it? What is the nature of this sensation? And if it's an uncomfortable one or a painful one, we can investigate, well, what is this pain about? Because pain or discomfort can signify different things. You put your hand in fire, you don't want to just be saying, burning, burning, burning. <laughs> there's no wisdom in that. You may, you may be mindful of the burning, <laughs> but there's no wisdom. Wisdom comes in a burning. This, this particular sensation is a danger signal. This is telling me something. Take the hand out of the fire. Okay, so that's the working of wisdom. Sometimes we might begin to understand different pain or discomfort in the body as the unwinding of accumulated tensions. Now, we all come here. I don't think there's anybody that comes here with a body completely free of tension. Maybe, but not too many. We all, just because of the busyness and the stress of our lives, we accumulate tension. So we come here and we begin to feel the discomfort and the pain. If we can bring wisdom to it rather than just be lost in reactivity, we understand, oh, this is tension. And through awareness, through mindfulness, we can actually let it unwind. That is the de-stressing that is going on. We make the space to unwind. Sometimes we might bring wisdom to experiences of discomfort and through that wisdom and investigation we say, oh, this is arising because I'm efforting too much. You know, I'm really, I'm over-striving and I'm getting tight in doing it. Well, this is something we want to know, we want to understand. All of this is the wisdom mind. Sometimes unpleasant sensations happen at particular stages of insight. You know, as we go through stages of insight, some of the stages are characterized by pleasant sensations, some are characterized by unpleasant. And that's just what happens in those phases of practice. So it's another way of understanding it. Wisdom doesn't stop just with an understanding of the sensations. Wisdom can also look at the attitude in our mind about the sensation. This gets pretty interesting. 
you know, we're sitting and walking, going through the day, and particularly with uncomfortable ones, how are we relating to them? Some very common attitudes in the mind with regard to pain or discomfort. Might be fear. You know, begin to feel some pain. And even if it's okay right now, the thought comes, what's this going to be like in half an hour? You know, we just anticipate. In our minds, we kind of anticipate it growing worse and worse and worse, and we get more and more afraid. And so that becomes the way we're relating. Or it might be self-pity. Everybody is sitting in bliss. I'm the only one sitting in pain. And then you just start feeling really sorry for yourself. Or avoidance. You know, there's a, there's a great meditative technique. It's called the sidelong glance. <laughs> we're, kind of, we're kind of mindful out of the corner of our eye, but so that's kind of the avoidance, kind of pretend that it's not there. Or it could just be downright aversion. We don't like it. You know, it's unpleasant, it's painful, we want it to go away. Although we may usually be aware of the sensations themselves, very often we are unaware of the attitudes in our minds about them. And that's why it's so helpful to just ask that question, as we've been mentioning. Just periodically, in the sitting, in the walking through the day, check in, what's the attitude in my mind about this? because it will reveal aspects of what's going on that may very well have gone unnoticed. So a good feedback, a very good feedback, it's kind of like a mindfulness bell to wake one up when and we know something's going on, but we can't really figure it out. We don't understand what our attitude is. We're kind of just lost a bit. The feedback that is so helpful and very obvious is the feeling of struggle. You know how sometimes you're either in the walking or the sitting, and there's just to say it's not flowing. You know, it's. We just have that sense of struggling in the practice. That sense of struggle is an important piece of information. So when you become aware that you're struggling, it always signifies one thing. The feeling of struggle always signifies that something is going on that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So it's very useful. The feeling of struggle is usually obvious. Rather than just be drowning in it, take it as this valuable feedback and a very effective and simple technique Recognizing, and this is the wisdom mind coming in. We become aware that we're struggling. Wisdom understands struggle means something is arising that I'm not accepting. So very simple technique. It's just, it's as if we just sit back, open up, and ask the question at at that time, okay, what's happening? We open ourselves to what's happening. And it's very interesting to see the different kinds of things that we may not have noticed, you know, and that we're not accepting. It might be, I mean, usually with strong pain, we're aware, but it might be kind of subtle levels of discomfort that we're not open to, we're not accepting, we're not even aware that it's there. And yet it's creating that sense of struggle because we haven't opened to it. 
It might be an unpleasant mood. You know, maybe you're feeling bored or you're feeling depressed or low energy. If we're not accepting of that, there's going to be a struggle. Struggle means non-acceptance. We can open to, oh, this is boredom, this is depression, this is whatever it is. Sometimes the struggle comes when there's a whole run of thoughts. Just the thinking, 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 and we're not accepting of that. So then we get into a struggle. Is this clear? Struggle means non-acceptance. It has been so helpful to me in my practice to realize that. Because then, right in that moment, we have the chance, okay, let me see what I'm not opening to. It's so simple. As we open to all of these different things, it's wisdom which is then able to see clearly, oh, pain is like this, fear is like this, restless mind is like this. We're just seeing the nature of whatever presents itself. There is no problem. We're open to the whole range But very often people feel discouraged or impatient when they, the realization dawns, and it usually dawns pretty early in a retreat, that meditation is not all bliss. <coughs> What's interesting, and this is true for very experienced meditators, as well as for people just beginning. And it's, it's really quite astounding how deep this conditioning is. How often do we measure and our, evaluate our sittings in the context of pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad? You know, you go, let's say you're home, you know, you have a sitting. Body's light, mind is concentrated, nice feelings. You get up, somebody asks you, how was your sitting? Oh, great sitting today. <laughs> and maybe you have a sitting full of pain and restlessness and boredom. You got up, how was your, oh, terrible sitting today. We all do this. It is so deeply imprinted, pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad. Wrong. (laughs) This is not right view. (laughs) So we have to get this one very deeply. Coming to know the truth of what's actually happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, is the deepening of our practice. Saira Utejaniya has a few great lines about this. He says, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experience. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? (laughs) Is this the way of the Dharma? So please be be aware of this. Dharma practice is to see the nature of what is arising in the moment. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, and to a large extent that's outside of our control. So when we bring wisdom 
to investigate and understand the different sensations in the body. It can also lead in an unusual way to a deepening and freeing understanding of the nature of consciousness. The awareness of sensations themselves reveals something about the nature of consciousness. And I had a very dramatic experience of this, so I'll just kind of share this little story with you. This was a few years ago, maybe three years ago or so. And it was January, and I had gone down to the Caribbean, for a week vacation with friends. It was beautiful. It was like 75 degrees, balmy breeze, the surrounding, visually beautiful, the scents of the flowers, delicious, everything. It was just completely agreeable. <laughs> and then a week down there, I fly back. This is January in Barry. It was a particularly cold spell. Came back, it was 20 below zero. And it was freezing. (laughs) It's like, stepped outside. It was like ice, you know, hitting the skin. So my first hit, it was like my first thing was, this is unpleasant. (laughs) That was pleasant. (laughs) I mean, it was just so unavoidable. But then, and this is what I love about the New England winters. I'm one of the few people who actually like them. Because it's so intense that if one has any Dharma background at all, it just inspires investigation. You know... Okay, what is this experience that is so intense and sometimes very unpleasant? And so right in that moment, I just became aware of the knowing mind. It was so cold, you know, 20 below zero and icy. So I, I became mindful of the knowing mind. Just, oh, it's consciousness which is knowingness. And then in that investigation, it was really interesting because I realized that the knowing didn't care that it was cold or not cold. The knowing simply knows. It's like a mirror that simply reflects what comes in front of it. The mirror doesn't care. It doesn't have preferences. Well, just like the mirror reflects everything equally, consciousness simply knows. That's its only function. And it was so interesting to see, oh, the knowing mind can know this very intense, unpleasant sensation. And from the perspective of knowing, it's exactly equal to that week in the Caribbean. So that was, that was just very interesting to observe about the nature of consciousness. But then I had the thought, but it was really nice down there. <laughs> It was really pleasant. And then, and it was in talking to Saito Tejanir about this, this little story, he had a very apt comment. He said, that thought, oh, but that was really pleasant down there, that's just the work of feeling. The work of feeling is to taste the pleasantness and unpleasantness of objects. So there's nothing wrong with understanding, yeah, that was pleasant, that was unpleasant. It's that feeling tone of the mind. That's the job of feeling. That's the nature of feeling. It tastes whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. So do you see how it's all, it's just nature at work. Cold, colds. Knowing, knows. Feeling, feels. And this is the investigation of the Dharma. This is the investigation of our lives. What is actually happening? Not our stories, not our reactions, not... Can we bring on the, the platform of mindfulness? I mean, that's essential. We have to know, we have to be aware of what's happening and then bring the wisdom mind to bear. 
we get interested in what it is that's happening. Just as we become increasingly mindful of the different sensations and our attitudes about them and the kinds of understanding that can come when we're mindful of the sensations in the body, whether pleasant or unpleasant, as you know, we also become much more mindful of all the thoughts and images and attitudes in the mind. We just see over and over again our likes and our dislikes, our judgments and our desires and all these conditioned patterns, these conditioned tendencies of the mind. We begin to see all the projections we have about other people. You know, have you noticed just these quick little judgments? You know, somebody walks by and there's just some little quick judgment. Or sometimes it's whole big stories. You know, we can create a whole drama about somebody. And it's often about people we don't even know. You know, we have no idea, really, of who they are. But it doesn't stop the mind from creating a story. Now, what's obvious is that we don't invite all these thoughts. We're not sitting here saying, okay, thought come. They just come by themselves. But through mindfulness, through that great power, we begin to see the difference, the essential difference in our experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that we're thinking. Right there, we could say, is the key to understanding our minds. The difference between being lost in a thought and being aware that we're thinking again is from uh, Utejaniya. Please listen carefully because if you get this it will save you six weeks or three months of dukkha. It's very simple. Don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. We are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. We don't have to struggle with the thinking mind. It's just the nature. We want to practice recognizing and being aware that we're thinking. That's all. In the awareness of thought, we begin to see its true nature. We begin to see its empty nature, its insubstantial nature. And it's all through mindfulness. It's all through paying attention. So I would just like to close with... a teaching from Ajahn Man, who was the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. He was, he was one of these great Thai forest masters, considered you know, by many people to be an arhant and very, very, very powerful understanding. And there's a wonderful biography of him by one of his main disciples, Ajahn Mahabhu, who is also considered to be an Arhant. It's the biography of Ajahn Man, and it's a fantastic story of his life and his attainment. So at some point after the retreat, uh, it's something you might be interested in looking at. So this is, this is uh, from Ajahn Man. Of the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. 
so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So this is our practice. Really investigating this priceless treasure. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.